folks, I'm Dr. C and welcome to my office hours. Uh, I'm excited today because we have another special guest. I mean, all our guests are special, but in particular, another former student of mine uh, whom I'll let introduce himself. He is a, uh, a former student of mine from my time teaching at um, High Point University and is now a, gra- a student at Arizona State University. Uh, Mr. Isaiah Hardy, if you would, let the folks know what you're about. Hey, hey, I'm about them Lakers. I'm about comics. I am a future movie director, producer, writer, and actor. I am very successful at it, and I thank God for this opportunity. So, yeah, that's what I'm about. Let's get into it. So, yeah. Man. Great. <laughs> Fantastic, Isaiah. That was a great introduction. Um, so, uh, Isaiah, I know you from my um, time teaching in, at uh, Hopper University. You were in my um, introduction to commun- or human communication class, which was the public speaking slash intro to communication studies class. And you were a media fellows, which for those who don't know, off the bat, that means that you were very much invested and interested in studying media, particularly from a production standpoint, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Totally. And so, and so now that you've uh, decided to continue your education at Arizona State, uh, just as a quick check-in, how are things going there? Uh, everything is going great. Um, God's been good, obviously. I recently just got an internship for the Phoenix Film Festival, so I'm going to be a filmmaker's liaison. So basically, I'm going to be aiding all these other filmmakers to where they're going to be going. And then in December, during the break, I'm supposed to be having like a, a six-day boot camp in L.A. So it can teach me how to really make films and how to break down on uh, setting up things and directing and producing and where to go as a director and how to move the actors and such and such. So everything is going well. Um, my creativity has been going up and making scripts all the way through this hot Arizona desert because there's nothing else you can do but stay in the house. So I've been writing. So yeah, everything's been going well. How y'all been doing? Y'all seem uh, y'all seem tired and more stressed out than usual. So the real question is, how are y'all doing over there? Oh, no, I assure you, uh, Barry and I are always this tired. It's merely that we put on a good face when we're teaching. Isn't that of right, course. Barry? It, I, I often feel uh, very similar to, you know, when I've done stage productions before. You know, you get up and you perform for the audience. Yeah, that's that's teaching. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You, you walk up in front of the class, you flip a switch, you're on, and then you turn off and you go crash in your office. That's... Yep. Yep. Usually how it goes for me. Anyway, so teaching uh, evaluations come back that way as well. Like, yeah. uh, I, I've had students, you know, write things like, you know, there were days where Barry just wasn't performing the same way that he used to. And I'm like, really? You're going to use that language to describe what? Like, what am I? Like a vaudeville actor for you? Yeah, Hello? yeah, yeah. That's how it is. That's how it is. It's like a rotten tomato score. You know, I feel like this episode of the Barry Thornburg production just wasn't up to par. It seemed like he was funding it in. Um, exactly. No, but but honestly, but really and truly, I mean, you know, it, it is a bit of a, of a production. But anyway, we're getting it a little bit into the weeds. Um, so the reason uh, for the folks at home, the reason I've had Isaiah on today is, one, um, Isaiah, you and I kind of like bonded over comics and stuff. Right. That was from the get go. You know, with every student, obviously, there is a very important relationship there. And one of the things that that defined our relationship was uh, a common interest over comic books and things like that. So that was uh, something that we've talked about. And we still continue to talk about because we've maintained in touch over Mm -hmm. these last several years. Uh, In fact, you lent me a copy of I think it was Under the Red Hood. Which Under, I had, yes. Which is one of those stories that, like, I've known of for years, but just never got around to reading. So that was a lot of fun, mm-hmm. um, as well as the precursor to Avengers versus X Men, 
then. Yeah. Um, uh, X, it was like either X cable or something like that. But yeah, yeah it's where cable comes back to try to kill the Avengers. Right. So, you know, and we, we've traded comics back and forth. I think I let you a couple like um, it might have been bitter root and I think maybe yes. one, of my, one of my Luke Cage's as well. Yeah. So we have this shared love of comics and actually what we're going to be talking about today um, in, in this episode we'll be talking about Invincible and in uh, our second episode which we'll record after this one we'll be talking about Batman and this idea of masculinity and trauma. So mm-hmm. today let's talk about Invincible and the issue of uh, representation particularly from a racial perspective because that show has some interesting approaches to it. Uh, they they get some things right, and I I'm sort of also curious in the ways in which that some of the representation breaks down a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. So for those who don't know, uh, Invincible is a comic book that was created by uh, Robert Kirkman, the creator of The Walking Dead. And if you've never read a Robert Kirkman comic, you should just so you can get an idea of like how much is different from like the TV show to uh, from the from the original material. Now I haven't read Invincible. I've watched the show, but like mm-hmm. for comparison, um, the comics that he wrote for The Walking Dead were way more, for lack of a better term, uh, sadistic and a little more unnerving than the TV show. Right? The TV show was yeah. the toned down version of it. I mean, he, but that's at best it's in service to exploring some really uncomfortable subject matter. At worst, it does get a bit gratuitous. But uh, in the context of Invincible, uh, the premise is, of course, you know, there are superheroes. Superheroes are real. And um, Omni-Man, voiced by uh, uh, J.K. Simmons, right, who we were talking about is an awesome, awesome actor, right? One of the best. One of the best. Whether it's in this or as J. Jonas Jameson in Spider-Man or as uh, Tenzin. Yeah, or as uh, Tenzin in Legend of Korra. uh, He he knows what he's about. Correct. Omni-Man, you know, is a uh, vitramite uh, alien species, comes to Earth, has a son named Mark, uh, and is trying to basically teach him what it means to be a superhero, uh, sort of. I mean, by the end of it, you get the the twist. And by the way, there's going to be spoilers for this uh, series as well. If you haven't already watched the show, just bear that in mind. So... Mm-hmm. Isaiah, let's talk a little bit about the sort of racial representation. Um, for those that don't know, uh, it, you know, obviously we've talked about it in the show before. I'm Mexican American. Uh, Isaiah, you are you identify as African American, correct? Oh, I identify as black. <laughs> that's what I identify as. Like I'm a black man. So, but right. yeah, African American, black. That's what I am. So let's talk about this broadly speaking from a um, an overall view before we get into Invincible itself. How do you feel about? representation broadly speaking within the sort of superhero genre okay so i get to let loose all right so in the superhero genre overall i believe i believe before race relations started to like edify and become like equal i believe it was made for white people and i say that because if you look at the majority of superheroes whether you go from marvel to dc to even image comics the majority villains and heroes and even regular people in between are white and most of the times if you go back in the comics maybe back in the what maybe the 50s 60s what would happen if Spider-Man was captain a bank robber or if it was stopping somebody? What would be the color of that person? They would usually be black or African-American and criminals would usually be considered to be black or African-American or people of color. So in the overall <clears throat> perspective of superheroes, it was tailored for and made for white people. But then as time progressed and the civil rights movement and movements of people of color were coming about, comic book writers like Stan Lee and Jack Kirby were coming together and saying, okay, look, we need to start 
we need to start incorporating black figures. So that's when Black Panther came. That's when Luke Luke uh, Luke Cage came. That's when the Miles Morales and that's when, you know, characters of color were starting to come about. And I believe as time goes on, that will only continue to progress. But it's all a matter of perspective on how you see real people and identify with people and then creating these characters based off of not just race, but off of culture as well. So. Mm-hmm. So on that note, because you bring up both like Luke Cage and Miles Morales, and I want to talk about them respectively, because Miles Morales, I forget exactly when he was created, but it was the mid mid twenty tens. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was like during, uh, it was like two thousand fourteen. I want to say, yeah, no. twenty fourteen. It wasn't. It was in twenty fourteen. It was during the time of the Ultimates. It was just after Peter Parker died in the Ultimate right. series. So that was probably maybe oh. Eight maybe it was it was maybe oh eight to twenty twenty tens but whatever he was created sure. so he was <laughs> you know? created yeah. uh, so he, he was created recently and he was created intentionally visually to be modeled after a combination of Barack Obama and Donald Glover right uh, and Ooh. what's important about that is that his his um, aesthetic choice to be sort of modeled after in large part Barack Obama uh, is sort of consistent with Marvel's stance on uh, on issues of race in that going with a sort of quote unquote safe choice, mm-hmm. right? He looked like, uh, he looked like Barack Obama, he didn't look like Malcolm X, right? Correct, correct. Now you go back to the 1970s when, um, I think it was 1972 when Luke Cage debuts, and in the first issue, and again this was written by um, Archie Goodwin who was an OG writer up there, was like Stanley and Jack Kirby. Right. Uh, Luke Cage is depicted, the first thing that he does is he's in the prison yard, in this private prison, lifting weights, and then he is approached by one of his fellow inmates who's going to uh, do a hunger strike or a sort of protest against the brutality uh, of the way in which the the prison guards are just beating and savaging uh, the inmates. Right. And he's like, no. If I'm getting my, if I says if I'm getting my ass whooped, I'm getting it for something that I do, not on behalf of anybody else. Correct. So you have this immediate like recognition of inequality within the prison system and sort of the violence towards the inmates uh, who are almost all minorities uh, and the guards being almost all white. And Luke Cage is like, I'm not a part of any of this, right? Correct. I am just here for me. And so it's that like acknowledgement of uh, of inequity while also trying to go with like a safe choice because again, it's mostly gonna be white folks reading this and they don't want to like make a black radical as their hero, right? right. So then, I, I say all that to, to say this, there's this long trend of addressing issues of social injustice, but only so much because mm-hmm. more than that might alienate a predominantly white mainstream audience. Now let's flip to Invincible, right? Where we have, which is essentially a story of colonialism Right. Correct. So, right, because you have the Viltrumites who uh, Omni Man is one of them, and he goes to you know they go to a planet, they take it over, and then dominate it to turn it into sort of one of their uh, planets under their control. Right. And you have this. It's it's you have this sort of almost like a metaphor for like the the Vietnam uh, or the trope of the uh, Vietnam soldier who goes overseas, finds a local wife. And then is you know simultaneously raising uh, 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 you know has a wife has a bicultural child biracial child while at the same time fighting on behalf of the uh, American colonial project that was the Vietnam War of trying to you know either control Vietnam from the American perspective or support French interests who are also trying to control Vietnam that kind of thing. Um, so then 
what do you think of Mark as this sort of in between? Uh, between on the one hand, he's white, and uh, his mother is played by Sandra Oh. Uh, she's uh, Korean American. Korean American. That's right. So white and Korean, right? Yeah. Which we also see echoes of like the Korean War, which had the same issue of like white Americans going overseas, you know, uh, having children, uh, having you know, getting married, that kind of thing. Um, with also like he's the offspring of you know a colonial effort. Well, personally, when I was going through, because I had to rewatch it and I had to actually study it again. When I was going through it, Mark, Mark to me, I I more saw on the sense that Mark was like like that baby formed out of a relationship that wasn't meant to be. Meaning sure. meaning back in slavery times, back in slavery times, we all know that sometimes the master would sleep with one of the slaves and out, out came the baby, right? Sleep is a very polite way of putting it, but yes. Yes, very polite way of putting it. People, do your history. Um, so the master would sleep with one of the slaves and then the baby would be formed. Now, depending on what how light skinned that baby was, the baby would either be considered very precious to some masters or would just be considered a slave to some masters. In the case of Invincible, Mark was considered precious to uh, J.K. Simmons character Omni-Man because not only does he look like a Viltrumite, but he actually had the power of a Viltrumite. So he was able to get done what a Viltrumite needed to be done. So when I was watching it and we come from the sense of Omni-Man's perspective, like, okay, I live for over 500 years. I come from Viltrum. I am basically rip off Superman. Don't F with me or I'm going to kill everybody here. Then if we look about it from that perspective, then we can also look at it from a perspective of he already is going to enslave these people. So it's more like slavery rather than colonialism to me. And it makes sense, um, not from a moral perspective, but it makes sense from a logical perspective, which Omni-Man is coming from when he says in season uh, one, episode eight, spoiler warning, when Mark confronts him about why are you killing all these people? And well, what about mom? How do you feel about mom? It makes sense as to why he says, well, she's more like a pet to me because obviously, she he's been treating her in that sense like a pet because he got like in my mind he does have the slave mentality which is i'm going to enslave earth and mark has to deal with it on a level of i'm part viltrumite and i'm part american or i'm part human and i got these two sides in me fighting for control and what what part of me do i want to live with do i want to live with the part that has the mentality of enslaving others based off of, you know, their race or their creed or who they are? Or do I live with the part of me in the humanitarian side that says this is wrong and this is who I truly am? So it's 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 an interesting dynamic when you put those two together, you know, and the other thing I wanted to bring up was actually a question for you or for Barry, which is. How do you feel about when Omni-Man was beating him up on that mountain and he said, what's 17 more years? I can always start again, make another kid. Because that obviously says at that part or in that scene, it says you're not as valuable as I think you are. So from being being a mixed race, how do you believe Mark or how would you feel in that situation being from a part that says you're not as valuable as I believe you should be? So this is really interesting, and, and Barry, I know you haven't seen the show, but just for context, um, there's a point where uh, the son, Mark, turns against the father, uh, Omni-Man, and uh, resists him. And Omni-Man's like, oh, well, if you're not gonna be on my side of helping take over this planet, I'm just gonna murder you and make another one because I'm gonna live for you know on almost another millennia um, 
what's another 17 years, right, to, to make another and kid. And beats the dog and, and out of him. Just Absolutely. Woo. Until Walton Goggins' character comes in and, and yeah, saves his bacon. But um, so on that note, because you make a really good point in tying this back to this this uh, legacy of, of slavery and things like that with uh, the creation of – it's always this weird thing about, about colonialism and slavery, and that is that on the one hand, the bodies of women were always fetishized by those in power um, mm-hmm. and therefore either demonized or in many cases, you know, captured and, and uh, dominated and subjugated. So what immediately comes to mind is in this note, and I'll get back to your question, but um, you think about uh, Pocahontas and her husband, I use that term loosely because it was a forced marriage, uh, John Rolfe, yeah. right? So Pocahontas was forced to marry, she was kidnapped and forced to marry John Rolfe, who was a uh, Virginia tobacco magnate. And mm-hmm. their children, who were by the laws of the time Native American um, would have had to have been dispossessed of all of their inheritance by virtue of being Native American. They would not have been allowed to have inherited the wealth of the tobacco fortune that came from uh, John Rolfe's, you know, uh, uh, business. So they literally rewrote the laws in Colonial Virginia to count them as white, so wow. that because if they lost that business, a lot of the industry would have fallen. So they essentially, through legal maneuvering, said that, well, no, you're white, you're you're white. Now, everyone else who has like a a white parent and a Native American parent, they're all natives, that's whatever. But you, 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 you very few children who are now adults with all this wealth and money, we don't want you to go elsewhere and we don't want you to lose all that, so we're gonna count you as white. And it's this idea of making exceptions when the, when the system of power makes exceptions based on utility, not out of intrinsic human value, which is what we see with Omni-Man when he's you know, trying to murder his son. His value is based off of his utility, what he can mm-hmm. do to further this colonial effort of uh, taking over Earth, mm-hmm. not off of any sort of intrinsic value in, the, in, you know, in, in his son's life. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of how um, I have heard the argument made in my community, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I don't want to give it away or anything. But in my community um, of women who, have, who may have non-white children uh, should terminate them on the premise of them not being white. So white women who had uh, boyfriends or husbands or romantic partners who were not white uh, being told by their family members or community members, that kind of thing, that they need to terminate the child uh, because the kid was going to be a burden. Again, we go back to the idea of a utility, right? Mm -hmm. Because the kid was not going to be white, he wasn't going to be accepted or she wasn't going to be accepted. Therefore, the the pregnancy needed to be ended um, or because... Uh, a common one I heard was, well, no white man is going to want to, you know, be with you now that you've had a non-white child, that kind of thing, right? That sort of inherent prejudice and, ra- and racism that upholds a, what is now the legacy of, of colonialism and, and the sort of white supremacist uh, environment and social attitude. So again, it goes back to this idea of human, uh, human life only has value in as much as it's a utility as opposed to intrinsically, right? right? 
Right. And so that's kind of what came to mind when Omni Man is, you know, handing out this this ass whooping to his son. And also, never mind the parallels with domestic violence, never mind the issue of child abuse and all that kind of stuff that is absolutely relevant. And the fact that, you know, this if you did not believe he was already, this needs to be that nail in the coffin that Omni Man is a villain, right? Exactly. We've been given so many reasons up until this point that he's a villain. This has to be like there's no two ways about it. Um but yeah, it's absolutely this idea of large systems of power don't care about people, typically speaking. Mm -hmm. They care about what they can do, if that Mm -hmm. makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I was thinking about is when you said a villain, I always like like the one thing I love about our relationship is I always try to I always try to throw a little yank in there and just see what you're thinking. Because honestly, while he is a villain, I am he is 100 percent a villain. Let's let's make that clear. I also think I also think which happens a lot of times in these like like slavery, colonialism parts is in his mind, which is the which is the most dangerous place ever in any human being is the mind. He thinks he really is a hero because if you go back and you go back and watch the story and you go back and listen to what he's saying, he's saying, look, before I even came here, Earth was already jacked up like earth was going through some terrible things then i came here i did some new things and now if they join the empire we will be able to restore certain things we'll be able to do this we'll be able to do that and he honestly believes that what he's doing is a good thing so when you think about these these times in in history when people were being enslaved when people were uh colonizing other people's homes in the minds of these leaders and in the minds of these masters or in the minds of these people, they actually believed that what they were doing was a good thing. So before we just go ahead and say this man was a villain, I think this man is a victim like like some of the other victims he used. He was a victim in how he was raised because he was raised to believe that going over to somebody else's home terrorizing these people, killing these people and forcing them to be a part of your territory or forcing them to be a part of your empire is good. He actually was raised to believe that. And in Mark's case, Mark was raised to believe that treating people fairly is the right way to go and treating people how you want to be treated is is more is moral justice is the right thing to do. You know, if you look at even how and I know this is not the biggest thing, but if you look at how even Omni Man and Mark actually fight, Omni Man fights to kill. Mark just fights to subdue. He he beats he beats the crap out of you, don't get me wrong. But mm-hmm. his fighting style and his dad's fighting style are totally different because Mark just fights to make sure you stay down. Omni Man fights to make sure you stay down and you never get up. You know, uh, Denzel Washington said something in a movie once. He said, uh, he said, uh, you know, while you go to heaven, while somebody goes to heaven, it's my job to arrange the meeting. You know, so that's yeah. kind of how Omni Man was. He arranges that meeting while Mark just says, I just want you to go to jail. So all that being said is I think we can't just come out and say, well, Omni Man is this horrible guy just because he killed a bunch of people. Don't get me wrong. He's a horrible guy because he killed a bunch of people. But we have to realize that he's a victim just as much as some of the people he's victimizing, you know, oh, and, absolutely. It, and it's, and it's hard to say that because on one end we're seeing guts and, and eyeballs and all these other things flying out because of what he's doing. But on the other end, he, he it, it's very sad because if you go back and watch the last episode, 
he literally says, why are you making me do this? And the reason why he says that is because he himself has now just realized he's a victim himself because of how he was raised. So it's it's hard to just say that a villain is just a villain. You know, you got to realize where how they grew up to become that villain. You know, one thing this this reminds me of is uh, a lot of dialogue from like uh, James Baldwin, who talked who who talked a lot about how um, one one particular aspect in which um, white people don't recognize how they suffer in a society that is inherently white supremacist or espouses white white supremacist principles is that um, the that ruling class of white people don't realize the moral decay that they are suffering from while they are enjoying the exploits of, of the system that supports them. Sure. Uh, that's, that's a really good connection. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, to your point, Isaiah, no, you're right. Uh, Omni-Man is like all the other Viltrumites, a victim of the propaganda of Viltrum, right? This idea that well, this is your moral responsibility, which is very sort of, you know, white man's burden kind of thing, right? Which we saw, uh, historically in the conquest of Africa period when you have all these Western powers from Western Europe uh, going in and, and trying to conquer and thus civilize, in their sense, civilize. I mean, it was a bunch of crap. I mean, the people there were doing just fine. Um, <laughs> or one of the other examples that comes to mind is like how uh, the, uh, I think it's the British East India Trading Company, right, which was one of the most horrific enterprises of humanity in, in all of our history. Yeah. Um, went as I heard one historian put it the slow Nazis because that's what they were uh, in the in the colonial era uh, you know going to uh, India and saying hey you guys are living lives that are not like ours therefore they must be inferior and so we're going to take you over for your own good and also we're going to make you farm in a certain way uh, that we think makes more sense than the way that you've been doing it for thousands of years. And the result of that was, um, one, not just the unlawful and unjust claiming of all the agricultural resources of that area, uh, this particular area of India, but also like the deaths of millions of people because what they had been doing for you know a thousand or so years was sustainable and able to feed everybody. And then when the British came in and just totally rewrote the rules for farming, it it, they didn't produce the same amount of crops. And so, and the British weren't about to lose out on their profit, so they took uh, what was there and allowed these folks to starve to death, right? Um, and in that case, the, the white man's burden was to make folks starve. So it, it, it very much is this idea of the people who are victimizing others are themselves victims of a certain kind of propaganda. And right. to Barry's point, this leads to, in many cases, a sense of moral decay. The other thing that comes to mind as you were talking about this and the idea of them being victims was that um, if, and I don't necessarily recommend this for anyone who doesn't have the stomach to do it because it is hard, but if you look at photos of lynchings uh, from the American South in particular, you'll see what is among the most disturbing things in your life. And it's not just yep. the way in which that, the, that poor human soul was treated by this mob, but the fact that there's children there. Yep. You look at a lot of these photos and there's children in the background who are there because this is what they're brought up to believe is you know, a sort of public justice. And so what is this doing to those kids and who did they grow into? In some cases, it's gonna be folks who have this sort of critical consciousness later on in life, like, oh God, that was horrible. I'm not gonna do this ever. And then you have other folks who are like, well, yeah, it's what you did because it was the justice that needed to be done. You know, like the kind of people who grow up and think that the Punisher's a good person. Uh, 
that kind of thing. Because that's the other thing that came to mind when you said the difference in fighting style between uh, Mark and uh, and his dad is also right. the difference in fighting style between Daredevil and the Punisher as talked about in the Netflix series, right? Correct. Uh, Daredevil wants him to, to go to prison. Punisher, I think he, as he puts it, uh, you know, I, my job is to make sure they, they stay down and don't get up again. <laughs> so yeah, there's that perspective as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. But but if I can just say something, because there was mm-hmm. something I was I've been thinking about, and I just had to get this out. One of the things I was wondering was that okay, Mark Mark is half if half white or half Viltrumite, and he's also mm-hmm. half Korean American, right? But yep. in the show, he ends up dating a black woman, mm-hmm. and the thing I was thinking about is depending on how you were raised, you may actually be drawn to dating outside of your race because Mark has already, Mark is already like, he's not 100% Viltrumite, but he's not also 100% uh, Korean American. So he ends up going outside of his race. He doesn't date a Viltrumite and he doesn't date a Korean American or a white person. He dates a black woman. And I believe that's also... A testimony to how you how you're raised you know um some people are biracial and they actually are drawn to other races because their parents were drawn to other races and then some people are who are from you know black and black white and white are drawn to black black people or white people because their parents are both white or their parents are both black and it's just it's an interesting thing to see that mark actually tends to go outside of his race altogether both viltrumite and Korean American and goes to a black woman and how that actually progresses, you know? So, Mm -hmm. and one of the things I was also thinking about from, from not only a fan's perspective and a black man's perspective, I was thinking about how they actually portray Amber, uh, in, in the series, because I'm gonna just be real. If Amber knew Mark, who Mark was like, as a black as a black man, I've been around black women all, all my life, raised by one, love my mother, you know, all my life. I know this. If a black woman knows something, they're going to straight up tell you straight up, like, I know who you are. I know what you're doing. Either stop it or let me in on it. And when Mark came to reveal himself like a Spider-Man reveal, he he flew up to the window and he said, the truth is, I'm and she's like, I already knew. And she was still mad about it. That that is totally out of character to me because that's just not what we do. Like, they're going to straight up say, look, I know you a superhero. Just stop BSing me. Just tell me that you're not going to be here and I I can work this out, you know? So I just think, I think ultimately it's interesting that he ends up going to somebody outside of his race. And ultimately it's interesting how people outside of the race they're writing or creating try to write a black person or try to write a white person or try to write, you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. outside of their race, trying to write that race in. So I think you bring up a, a couple good points. Um, so to the first one about the idea of him dating outside of uh, his you know, home background um, in terms of uh, racial identity. So there's something there, I think, because uh, when you grow up as a person who exists on this boundary between two racial identity groups, um, there is, and this has been talked about in, in research by people far smarter than myself, but the idea that you are both and neither, and right. that that identity of being both and neither might prompt you to seek a, another alternative to both to either of those backgrounds, right? Mm-hmm. Perhaps subconsciously, that gets into sort of socio-psychological stuff that I'm not qualified enough to talk about, but the idea of being essentially that like if you're so accustomed to not fitting in, 
then it becomes easier to find people who are very different from you, right? right? Uh, as potential romantic partners, and there, and there might be something to that. Um, because I think that also if you notice that Amber is like the only black woman at that school, at least depicted that way. Yeah. There's no other black characters in this circle of people, uh, in, the, in the, the characters in the show. So she presumably, if we were to extrapolate that a little bit further, we might say that well, she's also in this sort of in-between space of being um, a black American woman, but in a predominantly white environment. And so perhaps that is also, maybe she's also comfortable with the, uh, what we'd say the, the non-conventional dating choices, right, right. Uh, at that point, which is someone different like like Mark, who's also the only Asian-American, I believe, right? Yeah. Um, whereas you do have several different white folk on that show uh, in that in that high school context. Mm-hmm. Uh, alternately, to your point about, um, oh, shoot, I'm sorry, I just lost it. Your second point. <laughs> uh, about how, how white... Oh, the realism. Yeah, realism, yeah, yeah, yeah. realism. Yeah, sort of the, the realism or authenticity of it. It's it's one of those things that like I've heard people decry Luke Cage as being inauthentically black. Um, at the same time, I've also heard folks say that, well, you know, it is uh, like the TV show, for example, is what I'm talking about. The, in the TV show, it was a blackness that they were familiar with. So it, it does kind of depend a little bit on what, because, you know, and you know this, I'm not telling you anything new, and I hope I'm not telling the audience anything new, but black folk right. ain't a monolith, right? Correct. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Any more than like any more than like Latinos or, or white folk or anything like that. That being said, it it could easily I see, you know, stretch credulity um, for her to respond in that way because and she says in the show, right, that like she didn't say anything because she was trying to give him an opportunity to talk about this uh, and to actually come to her and trust her. And I, I don't know, I have mixed feelings about that. Generally I, speaking, I have, I have a lot of mixed feelings about that. Like. Like, no, <laughs> like, 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 look, man, because I've I've been on I've been on both sides of it. I've been where I've I've had something to tell somebody or I've I've knew something about somebody and I had to confront it. So it's like, you know, mm-hmm. I just like you don't you don't get mad at somebody for for rescuing you and then at the end get mad at them for not telling them it was you that was rescuing them even though you knew it was them like you see how confusing it just sounds coming out my mouth like you you just don't do that so it's like it was like that either could have been to me for me that was like a miswriting on how to actually get it right with a character mm-hmm. like Amber and then on the other end, you if you want to just take race out of it, uh, if you just had to, it's a miswriting on how to handle a situation like that. You know, mm-hmm. you never see Mary Jane get pissed off with Peter for, you know, well, why didn't you tell me all those times when you were saving me in alleys that it was you? You know, mm-hmm. you, you just don't see that. But, you know, it. It, it is what it is, you know. It's one of those things that, and I need to have uh, like an interpersonal scholar on here to talk about this, but the idea of secret keeping, right, from the lens of, of superheroes and what makes sense and what doesn't. And I did, I appreciated that she knew from the beginning because that's always one of those things that's like, well, how did you not know? <laughs> right. How, how did you look at his face? And even with the mask on, you didn't know? Are you kidding me? So I'm glad to see that they broke that a little bit. On the other end of the spectrum, though, it is kind of like, well, so you knew and you were testing him and that seems unfair. So, yeah, that, that's yeah. a whole nother conversation. That is, but. that is. But um, so going back to this idea though of um, of the Mark as a offspring of sort of this colonialism and that relationship between um, 
I forget Omni Man's real name. What is his actual name? J.K. Simmons. J.K. Simmons. Yeah, well, J.K. Simmons for intents and purposes. Yeah. But Omni Omni Man's relationship uh, with um, with his wife, and we talked about about this before we started recording. This idea of like, and you mentioned it again, him referring to her as more like a pet. Mm-hmm. And the reason that's so disturbing is because that's not an unpopular perspective, right? right. Among, unfortunately, uh, when it comes to spouses, this idea of often men, but not exclusively, uh, thinking that their partner is really just a dependent they enjoy to have around mm-hmm. for their own entertainment. Not only right? that, not only that, but uh, and I didn't mean to cut you off there, but mm-hmm. one of the things I was looking this up and it's gonna and it's gonna blow your mind when you actually look up the word omni, it means all or all things. So mm-hmm. he's omni man. So he is all men. He's all men. So in a sense, sure. what they were kind of saying is low key. What they're kind of saying is, which I believe is wrong, that all men in some shape, form, or fashion have this mentality have this mm-hmm. mentality of something or someone being lower than themselves and being in the sense of pet or being in the sense of something that's just a care thing only to be dis- discarded when needed. You know, like, like, let's just be real. If your pet is like very old or has no legs or something like that, it's usually better to put the pet down than it is to da, 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 da. So like in, Omni Man sense when he comes out and basically says, "Yeah, we're going to we're going to either take you over or you're going to come safely over to the Empire." He's basically at that point where Deborah, Deborah, his wife, no longer meets those requirements of you know whatever pleasure he wanted, whether that be emotional, physical, mental, whatever. She no mm-hmm. longer meets that, and at and even Mark at one point his powers, like you were talking about earlier, what he can give, no longer meets that. So he, he now puts them at that level where she's a pet, mm-hmm. you're a pet, you're dis, you're expendable. I can kill yeah. you and I can kill her, whatever. So it's it's interesting that they use Omni Man, which is all men, and mm-hmm. low key saying that in the back of our minds, all men have this mentality somewhere, at least from my perspective. I, I think following that um, that idea, I, whether or not all men have this perspective, I think at least in the American context, all men are brought up to have this perspective. Mm-hmm. We receive that perspective from a variety of different places, right? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily the homes in which we grow up in, um, but certainly in the sort of environment that we occupy our schools, the way in which we relate to other guys often is through a matter of dominance, right? Who's who's in charge, who's not. Um, it's in our pop culture, it's in our role models and heroes and things like that. So it is, it's a message that is everywhere, unfortunately, right? right. So, and, and hopefully the best of us, or at least even, not even the best of us, just like the people who do the bare minimum recognize that. <laughs> and then are like, no, no, that's not how I'm gonna be. I'm not gonna relate to other people, uh, in particular women that way. So there's that idea. Um, but no, I, I think you're right. And and that also sort of ties into the um, this perspective or this, this character construction of Omni-Man when he says, why are you making me do this? When he's uh, attacking Mark, right? Which is a very much, uh, you know, cl- almost like a cliched line for domestic abusers, but is you know mm-hmm. certainly true to life of the idea of they in, they engage in violence, be, and at the same time they are a victim of what someone else is making them do. They are justifying their terrible mistreatment and abusive behavior because it's someone else's fault. Therefore, it can't be their own. Correct. Right. And so, the, so that sort of delves down deeper into this idea of the um, 
of the vicious, of the victim, of the all that sort of stuff that's wrapped up in uh, domestic violence. Uh, so yeah, so um, we are coming close to the end of our time. Let's. Um, I think we've talked about you know quite a bit here, and especially the idea of like the racialized identity of Mark, the whole you know connections to like uh, colonialism, and you know we talked about the disposability of of life under that sort of uh, inhumane perspective. And all that kind of stuff, as well as touch a little bit on Amber uh, and her her character construction. So, uh, with that said, um, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we log off of here? Uh, I mean, honestly, I think Invincible is a great show. As mm-hmm. a comic book, it is very controversial. There's some parts in Invincible. If you're going to read, people just realize it is controversial. But it's it's a great book, and I think everybody should, at least who are comic book fans or non comic book fans, should read it and try to learn something from it. You know, sure. you, you can learn something from a comic book, but yeah. And just a heads up, if you do read the comic, and this is the case for the show as well, and you find the gratuitous use of violence uh, off-putting, that's the point. <laughs> like when 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 Kirkman uses violence in this way in this show, it is meant to like make your stomach turn a little bit because he's trying to not, at least in my understanding, he's trying to show hyper violence in a way that isn't like romanticized and glorified. Right. So, yeah, it's supposed to be off-putting. Anyway, all right, uh, Isaiah, if you want to be found, where can people find you? Uh, they cannot find me because I don't do social media, but. I am about to blow up in Hollywood, so you will be finding me in the movie theaters. You will be finding me on podcasts. You will be finding me. You just have to search. All right. Cool. So, um, Barry, you want to do your usual lackluster plug? <laughs> yes, you can. Oh, God. My God. <laughs> Such a savage. You can find me at thornburgmedia.com. <laughs> Oh, God. With all, with all the energy of a used car salesman. Thank you, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, uh, and, of course, you can find me, uh, obviously, on uh, podcast here at uh, Offsiders with Dr. C, as well as on uh, TikTok at Dr.C, and on Twitter and Instagram at GACruz underscore PhD. All right, folks, thanks for dropping by the office. Uh, look forward to seeing you next time. <laughs> <laughs>